invite you to turn over in your bulletin. You'll see our scripture passage today over on page three. We are returning to our study in the book of Ephesians. We're now in chapter four in that section of Paul's letter where he's encouraging us about what it looks like to live the Christian life. Uh, having been saved by grace through faith, what it looks like to live in that grace and have it flow out into our lives. Uh, he, he talked, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, about what it looks like to put off uh, the old self and in unbelief and in unrighteousness and to put on the new self of righteousness and holiness. And he talked about that in general. And then he's been getting into this list of specific ways and areas of life to, to apply this. And last week we talked about lying, putting off lies, putting on the truth. And we come to another subject today as we get to verse 26 and 27, which is the subject of, of anger. Uh, we're going we're gonna to back up our reading a little bit and see the, the context uh, and then, then go into 26 and 27 together. So again, over, it's over on page 3. You'll see our, our passage. So let's first read, remembering that this is God's very word. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let's pray together. Our great God, we're thankful for your word, for Lord, you speak and Lord, train and encourage and strengthen and equip your people. Do that here, we do pray, as we look to you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my former professors, uh, the late Dave Pallison, wrote a really fantastic book on the subject of anger. And, and here's how he begins his book, by describing two individuals who came to him for counseling. Uh, he talks about Helen and he talks about Jimmy. So I'll describe them with his words, and then you tell me which of these individuals has a struggle, a problem with anger. Okay? All right. So here's Helen. Helen was in her 60s and so consumed with hatred that her hands and her voice shook as she introduced herself. She spoke of grievances that went back for decades. Helen's wrath on the day I met her was as fresh and as fierce as if all the offenses had occurred 20 seconds ago and not five or 25 or 50 years in the past. Her rage seethed continually, barely controllable, on the edge of exploding. 
Her son's wry nickname for her was Mount St. Helens, because she was like a volcano ready to erupt at any moment. So Helen, the volcano. Then there was Jimmy. Jimmy was 16. He sat in the chair next to me, quite composed, bored, in fact. His parents thought he ought to talk to someone, uh, so eventually uh, we, uh, but he seemed very much uninterested in talking to me, Allison writes. Eventually we got past the awkward silence, and as, as Jimmy began to open up a bit, he told story after story uh, about how he'd been mistreated by family, classmates, teachers, God, the whole God-forsaken universe. Most of his stories sound, sounded plausible, uh, but none of the offenses sounded particularly outrageous. Something struck me about Jimmy. He spoke in an unvarying monotone. His emotions were flatlined. He sounded like he was reading a telemarketing script. At one point, I, I asked him, are, are you angry? He was taken aback for a minute, then recovered his cool and said, very matter-of-factly, nah, I don't get angry. I get even. Helen the volcano, Jimmy the iceberg. Which of them has a struggle, a problem with anger? Wouldn't you have to say both of them? looks very different, on the outside at least, but in terms of the, of the core of it, the heart of it, wouldn't you have to say both of them? Okay, but we're here not just to determine whether Jimmy has a problem, Helen has a problem. Can we ask the hard question? Do you have a problem with anger? Do I have a problem with anger? There's the hard one. It might look more like Helen the Volcano for you. Uh, maybe, maybe more than you care to admit it, but, but when it does surface, it has that quality to it. Uh, explosive, uh, violent, big, loud, everybody sees it. Um, or, maybe, or maybe it's more like Jimmy, and, and on the outside, it's, it's like iceberg cool. But on the inside, something, something ugly is stirring. Either way, problem with anger. Ephesians 4 seems to say that this is an important part of the Christian life. Wrestling with anger and, and God working in us to put off and to put on. So let's see what Paul has to say, what God through the Holy Spirit has to say. Uh, he starts us in a very, maybe surprising uh, place when he says, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Be angry. And actually, Paul here is quoting from Psalm 4. So you have not once, but twice in Scripture where the language is be angry. So apparently, anger at its very heart, or at least in, in, is not necessarily sinful. Not inherently sinful. 
The, the prime example we would have to go to of non-sinful anger in Scripture would be, would be God himself. God, repeatedly in Scripture, is described as having anger, of, of having wrath. And it's not just in the Old Testament. Old and new. You have the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth, right? Fully God, but also, also in full humanity, real humanity like ours, and he's described as being angry. Here's, here's Mark chapter 2, as, as, he, as he takes in the, the unbelief and the hardened sin around him, it says he looked on them with anger. So apparently, anger is not necessarily sinful. God, clearly, the Lord Jesus, clearly, angry but not sinning. We've, we've set ourselves up to, to understand this by, with the introduction of Helen and Jimmy, because what that has, has demonstrated to us is that anger isn't necessarily exclusively this, this hot flash of emotion. God does not exhibit out-of-control volcanic rage. Anger, but not out-of-control volcano. Because that's not the core of what anger is. In fact, God is described as being, one of his key attributes is being slow to anger. A, a, a reasoned, slow, not out of control, anger. That's, that's God. And apparently possible. A real thing. God as angry. Does that seem weird? want God any other way. So, you look around at the world, and you see a fallen world. A very, very fallen world. Evil. Ugliness. Awful things. You can look down through history and come up with examples. You can look out in the contemporary world and come up with illustrations of ugliness and evil. Uh, sadly, for some it is very close and very personal. Horrendous evil has come into your life and has been there in your own history. Ugly things. Evil things. How would you want God to respond to those evils? God, king of the universe, knowing all things, seeing all things, he sees that very evil that is so ugly. How do you want him to respond? Indifference. God who sees evil and is bothered by it, is angered by it, treats, treats it for what it actually is, ugly. And we would want that because we're made in his image. Of course, the final, final verdict comes from God's word, but it's no surprise that our own hearts resonate with, with a God like that because we're made in his image. That there are things in this world, fallen world, so ugly, that, that, a, that a response of strong outrage is appropriate. 
And in fact, the other options are very much not appropriate. Indifference? Perverse pleasure? No. Anger. Righteous, not out of control, but anger. Which then helps us to, to begin to put together a, a definition of what anger is. So it's got to be big enough to include, well, the, the, the unrighteous thing that we might tempted in our minds to automatically go to, but also righteous anger that God himself and the Lord Jesus exhibit. So again, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give credit to Dave Pallison. Here's, here's how he tries to articulate the biblical understanding of, of anger. Anger is an active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. An active displeasure in something that is important enough to care about. So anger speaks forth this, that matters. It's wrong. I'm against that. God doing it perfectly. Seeing the same ugliness that we see, only he knows it better than we do, and ultimately the offense is against him, and his response is this active displeasure, that does matter, God says. It is wrong, he's against it. Against the evil, both in general and those who commit evil. So we read of God's anger, his wrath, and as those then made in God's image, we can start to understand how this would be appropriate for us, this kind of active displeasure. Pallison brings up this interesting example. Because we can think of examples uh, on, on a human level, like, okay, yeah, I see anger here. He, this interesting example, he says, go back to Adam and Eve. We talked about Adam and Eve last week and the serpent coming with that, that ugly lie about God. We know, we know what Adam and Eve did, the wrong response. But think for a minute, perfectly holy, righteous Adam and Eve beforehand, should their response have been? Satan comes with this, this horrible, horrible big lie. God's not good. He doesn't love you. You can have life apart from him. What would be the right response to that? Anger? Right? How dare you? Perhaps even, even picking up sticks to drive Satan off? Yeah, that would, that would make sense. That would be appropriate. Anything less than that from Adam and Eve would be wrong. Indifference, don't really care, or certainly the response they had. So, be angry and do not sin. Ah, that trick is the second part though, isn't it? Do not sin. We're made in the image of God to care about evil, but we're also very, very fallen. And so, we get to our second point, uh, anger is mostly, usually, sinful. Be angry and do not sin. So as you go through the, the scriptures and look at different verses on anger, the vast majority, when addressed to humans, the vast, vast, vast majority of them are warnings and condemnations. Psalm 37. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Or from the New Testament, James 1, <laughs> for the anger of man 
does not produce the righteousness of God. Even Paul, a couple of verses later in Ephesians 4, at the end of this, this section, is going to say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. For fallen individuals, anger is mostly sinful. We mess this up almost all the time. Uh, sometimes, as we mentioned, it is the volcano, and so it manifests itself in this, in this explosion. Sometimes it's just being the iceberg cold and cool, but yet still it's, it's something that's not necessarily sinful, but, but now twisted, fallen, ugly, dangerous, and harmful, and offensive to God. But how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? It's not an academic question, because if you've, if you've talked to someone who's an angry person, you know if they admit that they, they have anger, they are almost always going to very quickly tell you why that anger is justified. That anger is righteous. That anger is appropriate. Okay, yes, I got angry. But the situation demanded it, deserved it. It was righteous anger, almost always. I bet that, that you are tempted, like I'm tempted, to say, okay, I get angry, but most of the time defend it as it's appropriate. And here's why. So telling the difference between what righteous anger is and what unrighteous anger is, is not an academic question. So how do we wrap our minds around it? Again, I'll give credit to Dave Pallison for, for giving me, I think, a very biblical image of how to wrap our minds around it. He says, basically, picture a courtroom. A courtroom where an evil is on trial. Now that, that sounds biblical, right? Because God, of course, is the judge, and he is, he is the one who, who says that he is even now judging evil and will bring a final judgment upon evil at the end of the, the age. So appropriate biblical image. Now, there's the courtroom. Evil is there. It's on trial. We could say, so, so what is our place in the courtroom? What is our place in the courtroom? You could say, as we've already mentioned, that we shouldn't be indifferent in the courtroom. That if there's an evil that's really evil there, it should stir up a righteous indignation in us. There should be an active displeasure for us about that evil. God, if we had time, we could even see how God brings us into the courtroom in various ways to play little roles in, in life. There's times when we bring a challenge, a rebuke, times when we, we offer up a word, uh, uh, calling out evil for what it is. Um, but here, here is where anger turns from righteous to sinful. It's when you and I step into that courtroom and say, yeah, but I have to play all the roles. I want to play all the roles in this courtroom. I need to be the one who prosecutes the case against this. I want to be the one. Actually, I want to back it up, and I want to be the one who writes the laws that determine what is wrong and what is right. I need to do that. My, my laws. I need to be the one who then prosecutes the case, presenting all the evidence. It's got to be me. 
I want to be the judge who bangs the gavel and declares the verdict. And then I want to be the executioner who executes sentence. All those roles are gods, aren't they? Right? He's the one who, who writes the law, his word that actually determines what's right and wrong. He's the one who says that he will prosecute evil. He's the judge who will announce a sentence and implement it. But where, where, sinful, where anger becomes sinful is when we step in and say, no, 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 no. I got to do it. Put it this way, we stop imaging God and we begin to try to replace God. That's where your anger becomes sinful and mine too. We stop imaging God and we start to try to replace him. And so we, we start writing the laws, right? Evil becomes what I say it is. And we start seeing offenses that really aren't evil, but, but they are according to our laws. I need to write the laws. Uh, we start being the one who prosecutes the case. So maybe it's verbally with your words, right? Listing the, the case against this offense. Or maybe it's just in your mind, but either way, you're prosecuting. You're laying out the evidence of the wrongdoing. Uh, you're trying to take over the role of judge, announcing the, the verdict, whether it's, again, with your words or just in the courtroom of your head. Uh, and then you insist on being the executioner, the one who inflicts the sentence, uh, whether it's, whether it's the, the sting, the biting sword of your words, or whether it's just the icy cold distance and hostility and quietness uh, of, your, uh, of your heart, you execute a sentence to bring that person to judgment for what they have done. You stop imaging God and you start trying to replace God. So if you want to start to wrestle with, in a real challenging way, of, of where your, your anger might be crossing the line, probably is crossing the line, into sinful territory, you start to say, in what way in my heart am I saying I need to do that part of God's job? I want to, I need to. Anger is mostly sinful. The third point we can do very quickly because it's pretty obvious, anger is dangerous. Anger is dangerous because you've seen this. If, if you thought of, as I was describing Helen or Jimmy, if you thought of someone you know that's like that, you have seen how ugly it can get. An angry person causing all kinds of trouble in their own lives, in their relationships. Uh, you've seen it. You've seen the, the damage it causes. Of course, we probably should ask that question. In what ways is my anger causing damage to myself and to my relationships? Paul here takes it to a whole new level because he speaks of the work of Satan connected with anger, right? Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So anger clung to, held on to, actually gives Satan an opportunity, a, a foothold, a, a place to sneak his claws in and sow destruction in your own heart and in, in your relationships. Uh, remember Ephesians 4, the primary context that Paul is addressing is our relationships with one another in the church. 
That's the context of Ephesians 4. It apply, everything applies broadly, but especially he's interested in the body of Christ. And can't you see how, how the devil would just love to do his destructive work in the church and use anger as a weapon? You can see how it would work, right? You, have, you see an offense. You're hurt, and you cling to it. You hold on to it. The indignation and frustration. And I do the same thing. I hold on to my frustration and cling to that offense and say, I got to keep prosecuting. And you do the same thing. And sure enough, distance, hostility, division, and the devil wins the whole way along. Anger is dangerous. So, so what, what can we do? What can we do about anger? Well, probably, no, definitely, the question really to ask is, what has God done about anger to rescue, to save? We've said all along uh, that Paul gives us the, the big transition from old life to new, and he says the transition is a person. It's a person. Right, verse 20, he said, spoke of us learning Christ. This is how, this is the transformation. This is the, the work of change. It's you learn a person. Christ steps into your life, and that's when things change. So what does it look like to learn Christ when it comes to anger? Well, we start to see what God has done in his Son when it comes to this very thing. And it's this beautiful summary of what the gospel is. God bears his own righteous anger himself in order to save us from our very unrighteous anger. So you could go back to the courtroom scene. Uh, there's God who's perfectly righteous and judging things according to his standards, not yours, not mine. And, and if we're honest, there's a case against us, a very, very strong case, because we have sinned according to his law. Even our own sinful anger is enough to convict us. And the sentence is, is God's righteous wrath, condemnation eternally. That's what we deserve according to his standard, his law. And he has every right to convict. But God in his mercy, in his mercy, rescues us. How does he do it? He does it by bearing his own anger. His own righteous, deserved anger for, for, for our sin. He bears it himself, right? The Father and Spirit send the Son, and there the Son takes uh, in on human flesh, lives this righteous life, and then spotless goes to the cross. And what do we have at the cross? We have God, uh, God's righteous wrath poured out upon Christ. That which we deserve and we've earned in the courtroom of life, Christ willingly receives it. So that there's none left for us. What does Paul say? Ephesians 5, he says, But God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, we could say, While we were angry sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God because the wrath of God goes on 
God himself, willing, he takes it to rescue you. So there's none left for us if you're in Christ. If you're trusting in this, in this Savior, then there is none left. There is no righteous anger in God's sight now or ever. It's all been poured out. There is no active displeasure toward you, Christian. Think of that. There is no righteous anger towards you from your father. Instead, there's only the delight of a father towards his child. All because of what he's done. And then this God, this father, loves us so much that he determines that he's no longer going to leave us stuck in this sin. He not only saves us from from the guilt of it and the punishment of it, he saves us from the presence of it, which is what he's doing now. Determining to, to rid us of the ugliness and not, ju- and not just forgive us. And so he's working in us and he's involving us in the process, which gets us to this whole section of Ephesians. How do we put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness? How do we, how do we be angry and not sin and look more like those who image God? Well, perhaps already we've, we've set ourselves up. Um, now, we're never going to be perfect this side of glory. And this side of glory, we will continue to encounter evil. So that doesn't fix it either. Just, just staying away from ugly things so you won't get angry won't work. You'll continue to see ugliness, real sin, real wickedness. The answer is not you becoming indifferent to it. The answer is you more and more imaging God and less and less trying to replace God. Go back to the courtroom scene. God making you through his spirit more and more comfortable with the fact that he writes the laws, not you. So there might be some things that you you think are offenses that aren't actually and you're actively being transformed by the renewing of your mind in his word. Taking Paul's advice, counsel, command here, right? He says, let not the sun go down on your anger. How can you do that? How could you go to bed, close your eyes, when there's been an offense, an ugliness, even toward you? How do you close your eyes, go to bed, uh, without reserving the right to take up the prosecution in the morning? probably what you're tempted. Ah, I'm going to take up this case in the morning and go back at it. But go to bed, not letting the sun go down. So you're, you're, you're putting aside the right to wake up and continue the prosecution. How could you do that? Only because you learn Christ. And you learn that God really does care about ugliness and evil. And he really will deal with it. You see it at the cross. And so you allow God to be God, and you allow you to go to sleep and put it aside, knowing that he cares for evil, and we'll deal with it. It's essentially what we read in our Romans 12 passage today. If you, if you uh, were, were listening as we were reading, well, you, you notice that Paul starts off that Romans 12 passage with abhor what is evil, hate what is evil. So there's that active displeasure. You could, you could even say, be angry with what is evil. Right? Don't be indifferent to it. But notice where he goes on to say, 
Bless those who persecute you. Repay no one uh, for evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. So don't take God's job. That, that's what he says. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So the more you, the more you learn Christ, the more you're l- comfortable with letting God be God. In saying to yourself, yeah, that's right. I don't need to be executioner. I leave it to the wrath of God. He's the one who promises that he will deal with evil. And I can let God be God. And I can even respond in love when there is ugliness and offense. Even freely forgiving. That's actually where Paul ends the Ephesians 4 passage. We'll study it more in a couple weeks, but here's how he ends the passage. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another. Think about what forgiveness is. Here, here's, one, here's one way to think about what forgiveness is. That in, in offering forgiveness to someone who's offended you, sinned against you, you're, you're essentially promising that you are giving up the claim to prosecute that offense. You're setting aside the claim to prosecute and enact a sentence. That you will no longer actively present evidence for prosecution. In forgiveness, you give up that claim permanently. How could you do that when it really is something that is ugly? Well, Paul says, forgive as God has forgiven us. Well, which reminds us how God does forgive us. That God does, in forgiving us, he no longer prosecutes the case against us. Uh, he, he no longer enacts any sentence against us. So we got to copy him. But it also gives us a way that we, can, that we can do that. And also to understand it rightly. That in, in forgiveness, we're not claiming that an offense is trivial. Sometimes we're tempted to think that. That for, for me to forgive, that is me announcing that, eh, no big deal. Sometimes we even say that when someone apologizes. Eh, no big deal. So sometimes when it's something gets really hard, uh, in term, it's a really ugly offense, where we struggle with forgiveness because we think to forgive is for me to say it's no big deal. But that's not how God in Christ forgives us. The cross of Christ is not God declaring, eh, no big deal. The wrath of God pouring down upon the Son to deal with your sin, eh, no big deal. No, it is very much a big deal. God very much treating evil as ugly. Look at the cross. But it's God in that choosing mercy, even costly mercy, bearing the cost himself. And so for us uh, to, for us to, to forgive is not saying it's no big deal, but to choose like God has chosen for us, to choose mercy, even costly mercy. Forgiveness, you, you pay a price, you, you bear a cost, uh, but you do it because God has forgiven you. No longer prosecuting that case because God in Christ has forgiven you. Much more we could say, but you could start to put together the package. And you see, what God is actually calling us to is something so very glorious. He calls us 
not to try to replace him, but to image him, to, to reflect his glory. And we reflect his, his greatness and his glory by, 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 yes, caring about ugliness, responding uh, with, with what really is ugly, with, with us treating it as such, but also showing forth his glory by allowing him to be the only true God and not trying to replace him. By, by showing costly mercy like he has shown to us. So what, what anger does, like we've seen throughout, is get us to the very core of what the gospel is and the core of what our hope is and the great calling that we have. Not just to live out a few moral rules, but to, but to shine forth God's greatness. You can only do it with his strength, but that's exactly what we have, even the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would encourage and strengthen us. Lord, show us your greatness and your glory. Uh, to know what is real and true. Lord, to, to, to image your greatness in a world of ugliness. We need, we need your spirit to do it. We trust you're already at work. Thank you for your mercies towards us. Uh, we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.